Or James 1, don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself, do what it says. Those kind of things. Yeah. And then what you're doing is you're saying, hey, you, you agreed to the call, but you didn't actually mean it. Now, do you really want to do this? Because I want to help you. And then that's where instead of going and saying, folding our arms and sitting back in our chairs and be like, well, you obviously don't want it. We actually go, okay, well, maybe you need more help from me than I thought. So, hey, did it, was it difficult for you to get up and actually have your quiet time today or the last few days? Okay, well, how about you and I will meet up for the next couple days? I'm not going to have it for you, but we'll do it together. Did you try to show your faith at all? Okay, you don't have any convictions or any faith on this stuff? Okay, you can borrow mine. Let's go out and we'll share together. And even those little things end up being huge, big impacts. If they didn't come and hang out with you, well, did you get them a ride? Did you think about how to connect them? These are things that we can do. Like, hey, I want to get you connected. Because maybe it just takes that little bit of breaking spiritual inertia to get them rolling. But maybe they need to borrow your convictions because they don't have any right away. Okay? That makes sense? Now, when somebody has been actually going out, maybe they've been trying to come out to stuff. Maybe they're on fire for God. Maybe they've been reading their Bible like crazy. Maybe they haven't been, but they've been reading and they're like, okay, I'm starting to see this thing. It's a little bit tougher than I thought, but I'm down. Right, okay, got it. Well, now let's move on to what the actual problem would be. And the reason that this is called the problem study rather than the sin study is because it encapsulates everything that would be wrong with your relationship with God. Okay? This is not a topical study just about sin. This is to get them thinking and you thinking that the problem with our relationship with God does not lie in a certain amount of works, of righteous works. The problem is and always has been unrepentant sin. Sin is the problem. It always was the problem. It always is the problem. It always will be the problem. If you're not reading your Bible, coming to church, doing righteous disciple things, it's sin that is the thing that is stopping us. And that is the problem. The issue comes when we start discipling and correcting the behavior without correcting the sinful heart below it. And that actually is helpful for our discipling relationships, helpful for our Bible study relationships, and actually with ourselves too. Make sense? Yeah. Come on. So today, uh, the, the problem study, the reason it's a little different is because it combines elements of the old sin study from the, if you've got the God the Gospel stuff, from repentance, and you can introduce the concept of judgment if you need to. Okay? And we'll go over how you know what to do with different situations. Okay. The purpose of the problem study. Anybody? Anybody know what the purpose of the problem study is? Yeah. Morgan? Okay. Uh, <laughs> to help people see there's something like God sees it. Yeah. And, and it was in stereo because Mike mentioned it too. So each one of these, if, if all you can remember is one word, so you got call, problem, resolution. If you, all you can remember is one word, just think C's for the, the purpose. Call, convict, cure. Okay? To call people, the problem study is to convict people, and the resolution study is to cure people. But if you actually want to flesh it out a little bit, it's to convict people of their sin, 
And the way the functional, because this can kind of get into this word convict and sin. These can kind of get like God terms and kind of religious terms for us. For me, it's helpful to think about it like this. To see a problem, see a problem, see the sin the way God sees it. That's really what we're trying to do. Get people to see their sin the way God sees their sin. But the first thing you do, the first thing you always do when you're doing CPR is what? Take the pulse. Take the pulse. Great job, guys. <laughs> and how do you take the pulse? Let's say you're stuck, you're frozen, you don't know what to do. What's the question you could ask? What do you already know about? What do you already know about? Sin. 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 There you go. Sin. Now, here's some questions that I also usually follow up with when I'm taking the pulse. Is what is your reaction when you see sin? Whether it's in other people or yourself. How do you react? Our reactions to things tell us a lot about our conviction and how we see things. Does that make sense? Yeah. You can tell if a guy is super like masculine and macho and all that kind of stuff by the way he reacts when you see a spider walking across the floor. Say what? Okay, wait a minute. But sometimes I've seen guys that are like super jacked and super macho and go, oh God, uh, uh. and you got that one guy that's, you know, that one guy that's a little twitchy and he just gets down and he's just like, boom, 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 I'm gonna make me a, gonna make me a, gonna make me a spider stew right here. <laughs> nice. How we react to things show how afraid we are of them, how we see them, how dangerous we see them. That makes sense? How we react. Shows us that those things. It uncovers our hearts. Some common attitudes about sin. What kind of things do we usually encounter? I'm a good person. I'm a good person. We will deal with that specifically. What else we got? I'm not perfect. I'm not perfect. Nobody is. <laughs> what else we got? It's but, just the way I am. Like I can't change it. I was born this way. That's <laughs> it. <laughs> I'm good because you use that for me. Oh, yeah. Sin is terrible. Thank God for Jesus. Everybody's doing it. Everybody sins. Yeah, that's what I said. Everybody sins. I'm a good person. Yeah, I know sin is bad for me. I should do it less. This is an interesting one because it, people are like, I'm just trying to avoid sin because it's a negative impact on my life. But not seeing it, it's it's minimizing sin. Yeah, Eric. Um, God forgive so I can, like, keep sin. There you go. Thank God for grace. Yep. Yeah, I have sin. Thank God for Jesus. Thank God for grace. God will forgive me because God knows my heart. Oh, boy, we have a lot to do. This is a really important study, okay? And there are three big convictions that or areas that we're trying to get across to people. Three big things that we're transferring to them. Our convictions doing a heart transplant from us to them. And the first one is we study and expose the way God sees the problem. Most of the time, people have never been taught this before. And even if they have, the magnitude or the full picture of it has been kind of warped or for the most part minimized. What I do with this is I call it triangulating God's position. Does anybody know what triangulation is? 
Yeah. Anybody ever watch like CSI or something like that? Yes. Basically, what you're doing is you take like a signal and you triangulate it between three different points, and between those three different points, you can tell where the person is. So the reason I call it triangulating is because there's three different scriptures that I find very, very helpful to show where God stands on the issue of sin. And it's in a triangle. What? What? Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 shows us how sin affects you and God, your relationship. Romans 6, 23 shows how sin affects just you. And then Genesis 6, 5, and 6 shows how sin affects God. And there is no right order of this. I've literally played around with going in all, this entire, like, every order you can imagine. Um, I usually do this one, Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, Romans 6, 20, 23, and then Genesis 6, 5, 6. You can go backwards, too. This is how sin affects God. Wow, I never thought about sin affects God. This is how sin affects you. What? Sin affects me like that when you really flush it out and then put them together. How sin affects you and God doesn't really matter. These three things together show God's position on sin. And we'll get into all three of them real quick. Let's go to Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. Come on, Matt. Probably a lot of you guys know this one. Let's go on over to it. Somebody want to read it for us? Read that a laser pointer. Woo! Laser pointer. Yes, Kate. Okay. Okay. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Okay. What are some points that you're bringing out of this? Things that this passage teaches. Think TRCT. Track it. What does this teach? That our, uh, our sin separates us from God. Yeah, sin separates you from God. Okay? Anything else? God's not, God's not unable to save us. Yep, God is not unable to save us, so it's not a matter of his power. Well, no, like, we're the reason why that's saved. Okay, yep, sure. What are some must... Oh, yeah, Summer? Our sin is not too out of the reach of God to save us. Okay, cool. What are some must-ask questions for this? Let's go real simple. First, what does it mean to be separated from God? Okay, sure. What separates you from God? What separates you from God? Yes. Anything else? Okay, let me give you what I got. Hi. I like to look at it this way because most of the time I like to show people that sin has an impact and I'm trying to get people to see that impact. Our society does everything it can to minimize sin and its impact. So instead of recess the question, what separates you from God? That's a great question. I might ask the question, what does sin do to you and God? What's the impact? Which the answer would be, it separates you. What is the consequence of that in this passage? He cannot hear you. I think a lot of times we skip over that part. 
Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. God's not the problem. But your sins have separated you from your God. And his iniquities have hidden your face from him so that he will not hear you. That last part, he cannot hear you. Total, utter, devastatingly separated. Big time. Until then, a lot of times what I'll do is I follow up with, have they ever thought about that? Have you ever connected your sin to separating you from God like that? To the point where, hey, if God can't hear you, what happens when you pray? Oof. That's rough. Now, amen. God is gracious and merciful. His arm is long enough and he is powerful enough, but it's our sin. That's the problem. Have you ever connected to that, that you're, you're felt separated from God? Well, guess whose fault it was? Yours. And then I'm always asking this question. How have you seen slash reacted to your sin? If you know that sin separates you from God, how do you react to that? Because your reaction to that will tell you how serious you think it is. If you say, yeah, oh my gosh, I'm separated from God, what'd you do differently? Not much, I think I just prayed a little bit more. You, what? That's what you did? This says he can't hear you. Your response to this was to shout louder? Now, I may not react like that. I'm just saying, I want to show people like, well, what good would that do? Yeah. 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 Do you really think that you see it as that serious? That's what it does to you and God. Let's go back to this. Triangulating God's position. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. Let's move on to Romans 6, 23. I think I just didn't hear this slide. Uh, so Romans 6, 23. This one is how sin affects you. And before we go any further, here's the danger of one of these scriptures that everybody knows. When everybody knows it, it has a uh, softened impact on people. So things that people hear over and over and over again, they dull in their purpose. So it's actually our job to make these things come to life where they have been killed stone dead and turned into cardboard cutouts of things rather than the truth. So Romans 6.23, that's a common passage. It's all part of the Roman road of salvation, which we'll get into that later. But someone want to read it for us? Let's go, Andrew. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, great, thank you. Track it. What are you teaching? Sin equals death. Sin. sin equals death. That's the big one. Yep. Anything else? You earn sin. You earn death. You earn death. That's not a good prize, but yeah. So, yep, really simple. Dennis? Salvation is a gift. Yeah, it is totally. Yes, right. Yeah, it's good to plant those seeds even now. Yeah. It's great. Alright, so what are some must-ask questions? What do you guys usually ask? Yeah, Dennis. What is a wage? What is a wage? <laughs> you would not you'd be shocked at how many times I ask that question and people say, Isn't it betting? I'm like, that's a wager. So, just to help them out with what is a wage. Yeah, Dylan? 
What type of uh, death do you think it's referring to? Okay, sure. Eighteen. How do I receive the gift of God? Okay. Yeah, I think you definitely can. That may not further your your idea of, of what the problem is, but definitely, definitely good. What else we got? Okay, cool. What's a wage? What is the wage of sin? Here's a big one. Have you ever connected your own sin to your own death? Because it's honestly really difficult to do that on your own. Most of us don't connect our own sin to death. And you want to know why? Because we don't die when we sin. We don't physically die. It is a spiritual death that we are earning and storing up. Now, when you touch a hot stove, what happens to your hand? It burns. You get burned. You've been conditioned that don't do that. It's going to hurt. Unfortunately, with sin, way too often, what are we conditioned to experience when we sin? Say what? Forgiveness. Like, it's, it's okay. Yeah, uh, eventually afterwards, sure, by religious people say, it's okay, buddy. Yep, so some of that, it's okay. What else? Like, right when you're sinning, when you decide to sin, like, let's say, I decide to test the stove, ow! Versus, if I sin, if I decide to go ahead and get drunk, right there. If I decide to be immoral, right there. It feels good. It's like the stove's a massage chair. Weirdest stove ever, but you're right. Exactly. Do you guys do you guys ever read the Odyssey? Do you know what the sirens are? Yes. Come with us. These, these like mermaids and you know bringing them in with their sultry sounds and, and all, all that stuff, and then they kill them. Feels good, right? Right there and then, but it it comes later. The consequence. And here's the thing: that Satan plays the long con. Sorry, the long con is where he's like, I, I don't have to get you right away as long as I got you over time. I don't need to get you right when you get into your sin right there and then. Your immoral relationship, it will feel good for two months. And then I'm going to ensnare you into an abusive relationship full of insecurity and objectification. I've got you. We don't always see the consequence of our own sin as death. Yeah. And then the practical training part is how can you start connect how can you start connecting your sin to your death? And part of that is just to see things actually and legitimately as man, I, I gotta first reflect on my sin, but to start to zoom out and see the consequences. This will kill me. That makes sense? Cool. Anybody questions on that? Back to triangulating God's position. Zephyr 9, how sin affects you and God. Romans 6, 23, how sin affects you. Last one, Genesis 6, 5, and 6. Let's go over there. How sin affects God. And for most of my life, I've just been doing these two. How sin affects you and God, how sin affects you. Once I started adding this to my even my own personal study, it tore my heart in two. Let's go to Genesis 5. Because sin does actually affect God. We don't think about that. We think, yeah, what impact can I have on God like that? 
Or at very best, we can kind of muster up the uh, Jesus loves me when I'm bad, but it makes him very sad. Like that's the best we can come up with. Somebody please read Genesis 6, verse 5 and 6. Here. 6, 5, and 6? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. You mean 6? Uh, it's Genesis 6, 5, and 6. That's a typo. Genesis, Genesis 6, 5, and 6. Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. That's a typo. Sorry, you find out how long Adam lived. Again, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. Anybody have an ESV or something other than the Ivy? And the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil at the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. That was ESV. ESV. Oh, something other, other than the NIV. Oh, <laughs> By the way, just to let you know, the NIV is not always the best Bible to study the Bible with. What? In fact, sometimes it's detrimental, but I digress. Oh, some, of the, some of the new NIV translations are great, some of them are terrible. Hit and miss. So, having, having a few. ESV is my favorite one to use, because it's pretty true in the text. Uh, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, um, and that every intention of the thoughts of, a, of his heart was only evil continually, and the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Sorry, what to his heart? Grieved. Grieved him to his heart. The NIV says deeply troubled. Sure. The ESV says grieve. When do people grieve? When someone dies. And me, every year, when the Redskins are mathematically eliminated from the playoffs. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. That's even like that's even how our culture deals with it. That's actually not grieving. Grieving, what this is talking about, is he is grieving like someone had died. Our sin deeply affects God. He is not up on his throne going, pish posh. <laughs> Banish the sinful wretches from my sight. Get rid of caveat. God is deeply troubled. To the point where it is like you lost a family member when you sinned. Crazy, right? We don't think about that. We think about, oh, it's bad for me. What about bad for God? I'm just going to go just for the sake of time. How does sin affect God? When does someone grieve? Why does God grieve when you sin? Why, guys? Separates. Sorry, what does it do? Separates. It separates you, but once you go to the one that's a little better for this, Romans 6. Sin kills you. God grieves when you sin because it kills you. Straight up. Have you ever thought about how your sin affects God? And for most of us, it's no. We've never thought about it. These three things together, seeing that sin separates us from our God, irrevocably rips us apart. And it kills you, and God grieves. We're triangulating God's position. 
So once I do that, then I ask this. With those things in mind, how does God see sin? And if maybe at the beginning of the study they might have said, well, he doesn't like it. Now it's he hates it. He despises it. Then you compare that. How have you seen sin? And if people are saying, hey, I actually do hate it like God does, you always ask, so what did that drive you to do? How did you respond to your sin? And if it's not cut it off completely, not quite there. And then following up with the question, so where do you think you got the view that you do have? Sin really isn't that bad. Everybody sins. I'm a decent person. All that kind of stuff. And the truth is we get it from society. We get it from friends. Some of us even got it from our churches, unfortunately. The thing that we're trying to instill is this. God hates sin because it kills the one that God loves. And at this point, I will often tell a story. It's one of my few times that I tell illustrations definitely. Tell a story about how, let's say that you and, I actually asked the person, who do you love most in this world? Webb, who do you love most in this world? Uh, Mom. Mom. And what I'll do is, if we're sitting on campus or wherever we are, I'm like, think about, let's say you and your mom are enjoying a nice picnic right outside by the lion. You're just sitting out there minding your own business, enjoying the day. And out of nowhere, some guy in a ski mask and a gun comes and shoots your mom right in front of you. Not in the leg. She's dead. Without a question. And then he drops the gun and takes off running down the, down the quad all the way towards Hampton Boulevard. What are you going to feel about that guy? Yeah, you're going to want to pick that gun right up and shoot him. And if you didn't do that, you'd want to chase him down. And it would not be that you mildly dislike this person. It would not be that you are irritated because your life has been somewhat negatively impacted by this person. The white-hot, furious rage that would ensue because of this guy's action would drive you to do things that you probably have never done before and feel things that you've never felt before. But here's the thing. Murders happen all the time in Norfolk. Murders happen all the time in the United States. Why are you furious about this one? Because you love them. Because you love them. That's what makes it different. When someone hurts someone that you love, you get furious. And that fury, that is how God feels about sin. Because sin kills you and God loves you. Is that how you view sin? And if not, you don't view sin the way God does. But you can start. What can you start doing to hate sin like God hates sin? And then you start talking through, really, what it is. It's identifying sin, 
and kicking it to the curb. To find it on a search and destroy mission and execute sin in your life with extreme prejudice. Because it will kill you. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Cool. Any questions? Great. Moving on. Once you've identified and helped people build the conviction of how God sees sin, now we got to move on to something else. you got to see your problem. Not just how God sees the problem, but how you see your problem. And how do we do that? Well, first off, we need to convince people that they need to see your, your problem. And so most of us, we're like, well, that's bad. I don't want to really examine my sin. That seems so negative. This passage shows us why we need to examine sin. Let's go over to Luke 7, verse 36 through 50. Amen. So you want to read that for us? Actually, Dennis, why don't you read... How many verses that for yeah, why don't you read to verse 43, and then Reese, can you read the rest? Okay. So, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a simple life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there, and with an alabaster jar of perfume, she stood behind, as she stood behind him uh, at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither one, either of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now which of, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgave him. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. And he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, you see this woman? I came into your house, you did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Okay, cool. Track it. What kind of stuff are you trying to teach here? Um, your view towards sin. Okay, yeah. Like compared to how this woman was. Sure, yeah. You're trying to teach a proper attitude towards mm -hmm. your sin. Okay, right. That, like, no matter, like, every person falls short, I guess, like, nobody's sin is, like, more or less, like, we're all forgiven. Yeah, we all, like, need, like, we all can't pay the debt back. Yeah. Yeah, that would be something you could teach. Yeah, Dennis. You need to desperately go after repentance. Yeah, desperately going after repentance, sure. Anything else? Kate? Um, how this woman showed Jesus great love by explaining, like, the risk that she took. 
Yeah, I, I think ultimately, like, all those things are correct. And I, I, it, it comes down to this, that he has been forgiven little loves little, but he has been forgiven much loves much. And this is a double, it's doing two things. One, it's showing you why you need to examine, like, how you need to look at your sin and be in touch with your sin. But then it also gives you great hope for the future of that if you examine your sin and deeply get in touch with it now, here is the great hope and the great love that will be coming from you in the future. And so it is. this is one of these great pivot passages that you really want to get a good handle on. Um, so you can spend a lot of time on this passage. This is a phenomenally deep and rich passage. Please study it out more. I'm going to go through stuff a lot quickly. That's why I've got the recording so you guys can go back and look on this. It's going to come at you pretty fast. Okay, so here's what happens. The Pharisee invites Jesus over to be his guest of honor. Historically speaking, culturally speaking, if you do that, that meant that you were trying to show yourself to the community how hospitable you were, and it would be your job to make sure that that guest of honor was, in fact, honored. The second that he walks into this Pharisee's house, he is automatically dishonored. A slap in the face. You want to know why? Because he received no oil for his head, he received no kiss from the Pharisee, and no water for his feet. These were basic amenities, basic hospitalities in the near Middle East. This would be like I invite you over, I say, Reese, come over to my, or my house for, for, for dinner. And he shows up, knocks on the door, I open it up, I'm like, okay, Reese, what's up, man? He's like, I'm here for dinner. I'm like, oh yeah, come on in. Wait, where's your dinner? I'm like, what? You said you were having, having me over for dinner. I didn't say I was making you dinner. You could eat your dinner. Well, could I have a glass of water? Nah, dog. That's, that costs stuff. <laughs> I use it. Can I use your restroom then, at least? No, I said that costs stuff. <laughs> the basic hospitalities were not observed. So Jesus gets the slap to the face. This Pharisee is like, in the guise of honoring Jesus, he's faking the woman, who, by the way, those houses back then probably would have been a little bit bigger, so it would have been more like an open courtyard-ish area, could have seen what was going on at this time. Now, let's think about this. Pharisees and this sinful woman. Pharisees, how did other people see them? Ridiculously spiritual. This would be like the most respected of spiritual people. This would be an elder, a deacon. This would be like Billy Graham or T.D. Jakes or something like that. People looked up to these guys. Spiritual mixed spiritual sin. And on this side, you've got the sinful woman. If everybody in the town knows who she is and that she's sinful, what's it very likely that she did? It's very likely she would have been a prostitute. So we've got spiritual mixed spiritual sin over here and sketchy mixed sketcher sin over here. We've got T.D. Jakes. And Billy Graham and Kesha. Come on. Or, if you'd rather, T.D. Jakes, Billy Graham, and we've got a porn star over here. Which of these two get the praise of Jesus? The sinful woman, Kesha, the porn star, versus the spiritual giants. By the way, just to let you know, when she sees Jesus not get those basic hospitalities, she begins to sob and weep, and she dives on her feet, 
just to honor Jesus. She's like, I don't have, I don't have water for your feet, but I have my tears. And I have my hair. By the way, for her to let down her hair, she was at very least risking herself to public shame and dishonor, and at very most risking her own life. There were some spheres that they executed women for letting down her hair in public. She goes, I don't have any oil, but I have this perfume, which in other passages, in other gospels, we find out that per bottle of perfume was worth about a year's wages for a day labor, which we're looking at like a $20,000 bottle of perfume, which she probably would have used to attract customers because she was, in fact, or probably a prostitute. And when she poured them on his feet to honor Jesus, could she ever use any of that perfume again? That is $20,000 gone in an instant. And then she lowers herself to kiss his feet that have not been washed degrading herself to the lowest of the lows to honor Jesus. Whoa. And when that happens, and we look at that, and you don't have to share all those things with people, but we need to know these things. So then I ask the question, whoop, come back. How do the Pharisee see himself, and how do the woman see herself? And then I ask, how do you know? You know how people see themselves and see their situation by how they react and how they behave. The Pharisee folded his arms as the woman literally gave everything she had, putting even herself on the line to honor and love Jesus. The Pharisee saw himself as above that. How clearly did the Pharisee see his sin? Not a ton. How clearly did the woman see her sin? Like crazy. That's where Jesus' parable comes in, where he says, Simon, let me tell you a story about the two, tax, or the two uh, people that owed money. Neither one of them could pay it back. One was a little debt and one was a big debt. They were both canceled. Who is more grateful? The one with the big debt. They were actually both in the same position, owing debts that they couldn't pay. They were equally desperate. But what ended up happening was that because one, even though he couldn't pay it back, was like, ah, I could have figured it out. He wasn't as grateful. Versus the other one, they're like, oh my gosh, there's no way that I could have done that. And then, and this is crazy, how does Jesus say seeing your sin affects you? What's it say? In the scripture, you'll love more. Yeah. This is insane that your ability to get in touch with your own sin dictates how much you will love God. Yeah. If you don't see your sin, or you see very little, you will love very little. If you see a lot, you will love a ton. And then that's where you follow. you got to ask, you know, so which one of these two do you resemble? Pharisee and the sinful woman. And sometimes what will happen is that it becomes pretty clear, like, that their answer 
it's, they're not really in touch with their sin, but they'll still say the sinful woman. And so instead of belittling them and being like, what? You even reading this? I ask, okay, so what did your uh, clarity of seeing your situation drive you to do? Because for her, she was like, I'm given everything. I'm willing to literally take this thing that I would use for my sinful job and pour it out in a heartbeat, costing me thousands of dollars. And I'm re- literally willing to die here, by the way. So what is your hatred or your clarity of seeing how desperate your situation has driven you to do? And if there's nothing like that, then you humbly suggest, well, maybe you haven't seen it as clearly as you think. The good news for this, though, is why is it so important to dig deep into your sin? Because that will launch you and catapult you into a life of gratitude for forgiveness. That's why we need to dig deep into and see our sin. You ever wonder what that? Are we just trying to bring people on this crazy guilt trip? Of like, haha, now I've got you. I've got something to hold over your head. No, it's because Jesus himself says he has been forgiven little loves little. If you don't see your sin, you'll never be grateful for forgiveness. I have my little rhyme of, you want to see the magnitude of your sin to experience the gratitude of forgiveness. Make sense? And then your training portion of that is, what do you think you can start doing to see your sin like the woman? And that means, well, we got to get a little bit deep. i got to examine my life and start pinpointing what sin is really going on to count my debt, if you will. It's kind of like that moment where you go to check your grade. You actually need to go see what your grade is. Or when you open up your online banking account, check that. Time to actually see what you got in there, how much you owe, how much you don't have. That kind of stuff. So, the gratitude for forgiveness. Oh, hey, anything you want to add here? So we're also, we're still trying to help people see their needs. So this makes a normal segue from, okay, you need to see your debt. Let's start getting into the specifics. Identify your problem. These are sin lists. Not sin less, sin lists. Lists of sin in the Bible. Um, by this point, you probably get the idea and the picture of the person that you're studying the Bible with you know what kind of sin probably is going on in their life. Because you need to be able to apply one of these, two of these, maybe all of these, but purposefully to the person that you're studying with. I love Mark 7, 20 through 23, because first off, it's Jesus. And I love everything by Jesus more than I like anything else, pretty much. Uh, It starts off by talking about actually sin comes from your heart. So what comes out of a man is what defiles him. But then even the kinds of sin that's mentioned, it's for anybody. It's evil thoughts. It's sexual morality. It's malice. It's folly. It's arrogance. It's kind of the whole thing. So I uh, sometimes I'll only look at this one because it covers everything I need. 
Um, Galatians 5, 19 through 21, the dreaded Galatians 5. This is the classic sex, drugs, and rock and roll, very worldly lifestyle. And a lot of us got convicted by this. And that's cool. Well, not cool, but it's good that we got convicted by this. But if you try to talk this through a worldly person or through a, a really religious person that's never done any of this stuff, they might sit there and fold their arms and all of a sudden you got a Pharisee on your hand going, yeah, anybody that does that is terrible. Yeah. That is really bad. Versus somebody who, and you even see this, the Pharisee doesn't think there's anything wrong with him versus the woman who's got more external sin. She sees her sin very clearly. I'm a mess. Doesn't mean that people that are more religious and have more internal sin are lost more. I guess they, I don't know. But it means you got to apply more purposeful scriptures. This will help if any of you guys want to serve in the teen ministry. This kind of stuff will help. Galatians 5 may help some teens, but probably Mark 7 and particularly 2 Timothy 3 might help a little bit more. Um, Ephesians 5, 3 14 discusses a lot about sexual sin and just worldliness in general. Uh, it's also useful for talking through, hey, uh, anybody that just tries to deceive you with empty words, no, don't let anybody do that because God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Mm -hmm. But also, you ever get somebody that, that tries to tell you, hey, I'm not, I, I used to go to those parties, but I'm not going to go anymore. No, but you know what? I'm going to go, but I'm not going to drink. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be there, but I'm not going to be part of it. Yeah. Ephesians 5, you know what it says? It says, have nothing to do with the shameless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. So if you go to those parties and you're sitting there, you need to expose the evil. You need to expose what's going on. Because if you don't, you will have a silent approval. People will think, hey, he's there. He's not saying anything. She's okay with it. She may not be doing that stuff, but you know what? She's, uh, she's not telling anybody to stop. She must be okay with it. Your silent approval. Yeah. Revelation 21.8, this is the full spectrum of sin because it literally has murderers, idolaters, sorcerers with liars and cowards. And they all go to the same place. So some people are like, hey, I only lie. I could be doing a lot worse stuff. Revelation 21. And 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5, this is huge. This is for religious people or have a lot of heart sin. And it starts off by saying, in the last days, there will be terrible times. And in the Bible, when you hear terrible times, what kind of stuff do you think of? Volcanoes. Fire, volcanoes, what? I was going to say weeping in the national Weeping in national teeth. Zombies, tsunamis, and zombies, zombies riding tsunamis, monsters. I always imagine a dragon. It's always a dragon. But that passage, it goes, you're ready for, yeah, release the Kraken. But it goes, be careful in the last days, there will be terrible times. Brace for the dragon. People will be lovers of themselves. Say what? Lovers of money. What? Brash, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, being lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. You read that like... <laughs> you see this? Things aren't looking good for us in the 21st century. And then it says... 
They have a form of godliness, but deny its power. Have nothing to do with such people. If this is going on in your heart, I don't care how many church services you've been to, have nothing to do with them. They have a form of godliness, but deny its power. So when you're getting into this stuff, you guys can go through all these things. Um, I'm going to put together, or no, I think I'm going to send you a resource that has all of these um, examples of stuff put out there. Because uh, a lot of times, some of these words, like, anybody here know what malice is? Evil. What's malice, James? It's like evil, wickedness. Something yeah. Like Maliciousness or hatred of forethought. Okay. Anybody know what folly is? <laughs> yeah, foolishness. <laughs> anybody give me an example of foolishness? Running around naked. Running around naked, sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hitchhiking, sure. It's doing stupid stuff that you know is stupid chance. Giving out cells to birds. <laughs> Giving out cells to birds, yes, Reese. Breaking laws, yep. And then there's just some of this stuff, like, by the way, parking illegally. Staying up late before your tests. Not doing your homework. Not turning in your paperwork to graduate. Folly. <laughs> it's a lot easier than we think. Being stupid. So, we got so many examples of this. Okay, I'm good. All right. When we identify the problem, we are not trying to play spiritual whack a mole here. We are not trying to play a big game of gotcha. Because, frankly, some of you guys, as well as me, if we studied sin, you'd be just as culpable. Guilty. Just as guilty as some of these guys. And then you try to explain that to them. Why you're right with God and they're not. Also, do you ever get the feeling that like, you just try to like, okay, I try to deal with this sin and this one pops up and then this one pops up. And, and people that study the Bible with us, then they get frustrated. They're like, oh, I keep trying to change, but it's never good enough. Because the second I get my purity under control, then my pride gets out of control. And we just try to play spiritual whack-a-mole. We hit it, boop, 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 boop. So frustrating. And then it does turn into a great salvation of works rather than salvation of grace. Wow. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that is why instead of playing spiritual whack-a-mole, we want to help them find their core sin. When I say their core sin, I mean the one or two sins that drive, inform, and uh, support all their other sins. We all usually have one or two fundamental issues. And frankly, it normally always comes back to something like pride, selfishness, selfish ambition, fear, anger, those kind of things. Faithlessness, all this stuff. It, and it ends up being the one kind of big core issue that drives everything else. Sometimes we can focus so much in on people's sexual pasts and sexual sin. And those are huge because that will actually tell you a lot about a person's heart, their sexual past, their sexual sin. It'll tell you even why they do those things, what's really going on at their core. But we can't just harp away on sex is bad, sex is bad, sex is bad. Stop watching pornography. Don't go to that party. Why people go to those parties, why people 
have sexual relations, why people look at pornography, this stuff tells you what's going on in their heart. We're going to do a whole session on this, and in fact, you have in your packets a whole thing about getting to the heart and finding the core sin. Um, but what, we have to, what we're doing is we're looking for common threads between different sins. For example, if somebody goes to a party to fit in and looks at pornography to feel better about themselves and will hook up with people or will have immorality or will be immoral with their significant other or strangers or whoever um, in order to feel loved, what does that tell you about their core sin? Insecurity. Insecurity. Which is a, the point of pride, overthinking about yourself and you don't have a security in God and that you're willing to compromise based on how you feel about yourself in any given moment. That's very different than somebody who goes to parties because it feels good and that pornography just feels good. And it, once again, it's pleasure, pleasure, pleasure. If somebody's all about that, what's kind of at the root of those? Selfishness. Selfishness. You guys hear what I'm saying? Yeah. And so helping people get to the point where they can uncover those things for themselves is huge. A lot of times this will unlock a lot of things and help people piece together their, their depraved hearts, their sinful nature. But all of a sudden it will, make, it will become clear in a moment of great clarity, kind of like when the camera lens focuses in and those things that you always wondered and thought just become clear, boom, right there. Now, how do we get people to be real with us about this? Let me just say, I never ask anyone to be open about their life until I have painted the picture of my own nasty, stinky, selfish, prideful sin. And so what I do is I literally sit there and I tell them a good you know, five, six minute story of my life and my own sin. And I talk about, and I, I give them an example, my life, I'm a selfish person. Throughout my entire life, everything was seen through the lens of how does this benefit me? I went to church every week, every Sunday, every Wednesday, and most Fridays. And I liked it because it benefited me. I liked the way the adults thought about me. I liked my friends. I loved snack. It was great. It benefited me. But it didn't benefit me to go to school and play the church kid. Church kid gets made fun of. Do you know what benefited me at school? To be the worldly guy. I'll take a look at Mark 7 and I'll say, man, you want to talk about lewdness? That was my life. I was the kid that would say anything dirty, any dirty joke. I won a contest of my friends of who could string together the most colorful swear words. I won that contest and I was proud. I would lie about everything because it benefited me. Why would I tell the truth if you thought something different about me? I'd lie to teachers about assignments that I did. I'd lie to friends about what scores I got on my, on my tests. I'd lie about things that I had done, things that I hadn't done. I'd lie to my parents about chores that I'd done. It all benefited me. When it came to sexual morality, you know, my mindset was, you know, I, I would, I was addicted to pornography for a long time. And it was because I'm like, look, the girl puts herself out there. Who's this hurting? Benefits me. When that didn't, when that wasn't enough, just go out and go flirt with girls, whoever. If a girl was kind of a little bit easier, you know, I'd push her, I'd, I'd, to talk her into doing anything that I could talk her into doing. Because it benefited me. 
But if now the, the girl wasn't into it, I'm like, okay, yeah, yeah, I'm, you know, I, I'm not like those other guys. That was my life. Always to benefit me, even the good things that I did, the mission trips, the service projects, I liked how I felt about myself that benefited me. That's the level of openness that I get with these people. And sometimes it's the first time that we sit down, like that I get in those studies. I do this in the problem study, but that's the kind of vulnerability that if you come across like that, then they're going to go, oh, I can say whatever. Yeah. I can be vulnerable too because God wants people. It's not the healthy that needs a doctor. It's the sick. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. So we need to be open about our own lives so that they can feel open about their lives. And then we help them see their core sin. We don't have to uncover everything. It's good for them to be open to the light about everything. But when we can start to connect these dots in their heart, they're like, oh my gosh, my heart is dark and depraved and twisted. I've been driven by fear or selfishness or selfish ambition or pride my whole life. And then they go, how could I possibly be a good person? Is that making sense here? Yeah. Cool. Just moving on. Uh, I said we would get to this idea of um, I'm a good person. Flip over real quick, Romans 3, 23. Romans 10, 18. I don't know if we're going to have time to cover everything today. But I, I want to give you guys this. Okay. So if somebody says, I'm a good person, my follow-up question is always, well, compared to who? Or compared to who? For these grammar Nazis out there. <laughs> Let me read verse 23 for me, please. Brown, can you please do that for me? Yeah. So for all have sinned and fall short of, of the glory of God. Yep, that's it. For all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Most people that I know use the scripture to say, hey, everybody sins, nobody's perfect. The problem with that is that this passage is not comparing us to each other. What is this passage comparing us to? The glory of God. So very often, here's what I'll end up doing. Before I look at this passage, I'll do this. I'll go, okay, here's a spectrum, okay, of how good people are. On this side... It's Jesus, and on this side is Hitler. Okay? In the middle. Please, can you put yourself on this spectrum? Most people put themselves maybe here, maybe here, maybe a few humble ones down here. The furthest I ever had anybody do was up here. The other day, a guy put himself here, and I'm like, whoa. I'm about to get you some water because the only thing you can't do is walk on it, but you can surely turn it to wine. And I'm like, okay, cool. I do this before we look at this passage. Then I look at this passage and I go, okay, so we all sit all fall short of the glory of God. We're comparing ourselves to Jesus here. Brianna, could you please read also that in context, which would be what happens right before it. Could you read verses 10 through 18? Okay. 
as it is as it is written there is no one righteous not even one there is no one who understands there is no one who seeks god all have turned away they have they have together become worthless there is no one who does good not even one their throats are open graves their tongues practice deceit the poison of vipers is on their lips their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness their feet are swift to shed blood ruin and misery mark their ways and the way of peace they, they do not know thank you so it says who's good no nobody there is no one righteous not even one there is no one who does good not even one. They have all together become worthless. According to God, is there anybody that is up here? No. Is there anybody even in this side? No. No, because if really, if we were to actually show what this really looks like, here's Hitler, and Jesus would be somewhere in Missouri. On this scale right here, frankly, do you know where y'all lie naturally and myself? Do you know where we are? We're hugging Hitler. That is not necessarily that you are going out and plotting the genocide of people. Because there will always be people doing worse stuff. What I'm saying is that you don't, not that you don't understand necessarily how bad you are, it's that you don't understand how righteous God is. And that if you don't understand that, you are not just missing out on the truth, but you have a ridiculous, overinflated ego yep. of how your how great your own righteousness is. And what I was trying to bring to is that you have a warped sense of what righteousness is because you're comparing yourself to who? You're a good exactly other people. You're comparing yourself to drug dealers and rapists and murderers. I'm not saying you're doing those things. But as we get into sin and see more of your heart, you're not a good person compared to Jesus. Your heart is a sin factory, pumping a black sludge of sin into everything that you do. That's your problem. Make sense? Yeah. For the sake of time, we will go over the last point of the problem next time, which is seeing the consequence of your sin. And frankly, this point right here is for people that when you study out sin, that they go, oh, well, you know, that's, that's terrible. Yeah, that's a lot of sin, but thank God for Jesus. Basically, what you do is you just, you show them repentance. Luke 13, Acts 26, 2 Corinthians 7, unrepentant sin. You show them no repentance equals no forgiveness. So, what is the problem? Sin. It has always been your problem. Unrepentant sin will send you to hell. And your final challenge for them is to create an inventory or reflection of their sin. Do not call it a list. Call it a reflection. Call it an inventory. It doesn't really matter what they do. And what I encourage them to do is I encourage them to go through the sin passages. I give them all. And I say, why don't you think through these particular sins? Go through the first time that you did it. The most recent time that you did it. The worst it ever got. And how often it happened. So that you can just see written out before you the magnitude of your own sin. Now, I say, I make it very clear, like, this really isn't for me. 
You, no one's collecting this. This is for you to get in touch with your own sin. If you decide to share it with us, great. Now, confession, yeah, we're going to talk through that. That's something different, but I don't need a written copy of anything. Nobody ever needs a written copy of that stuff. This is an exercise for them to get in touch with their sin, the purpose of which is to see the magnitude of sin so that they can have, experience the gratitude and forgiveness and for them to be motivated to start changing now. Oh, I don't even know why this slide is in here. There we go. That's the problem. 